0: But your lips, they are cold. And your face, what has happened to your face? And your eyes, your white staring eyes, and the lie that grows in them. I will return with my sharks. She's dead, Richard. I want that coffin opened. But
1: I bargained with Satan.
0: I bargained with him. He took me up, gave me 24 hours. A nightmare construct of polyphonic drone generators and ultrasonic inverters thick, spiraling amplifier coils, and blood-red keyboards.
1: Welcome to the Sex and Murder Podcast, this is part 2 of the Bonnie and Clyde story. We're picking up from the last episode, with Clyde forming a crew with Bonnie, Fultz and Hamilton. Now, I don't know what was worse the first few weeks of the Barrow Gang, their decisions or luck. They stole a safe expecting several thousand dollars, only to crack it to find it's completely empty. Hamilton, whose experience was boosting and fencing, suggested that they steal cars instead. The individual takes were smaller than businesses or banks, but you knew a rough taking instead of guessing if there would even be money in the drawers. Fultz and Clyde really didn't want to go that route. They needed lots of money and quick. Clyde and Foltz wanted to raid the Eastern Prism farm. They got a cheap arsenal, Saturday night special handguns, and a couple of shotguns. Now these handguns were cheap, and at this time you could pick them up nearly everywhere for a couple of dollars each. They weren't accurate even at close range, but they weren't meant for the prison job. Hoping for some Thompson machine guns and some vests, they looked at hitting a bank to finance the more expensive items. The lucky bank choice was in Minnesota, but Clyde called this off at the very last minute, because. The roads were too slippery. Instead, they found the First National Bank in Lawrence, Kansas. They took 2 days to case the bank and the escape routes out of town. On the 3rd day, the bank manager arrived at the usual time, 8:45. Clyde and vaults with shotguns rushed into the building after him while Hamilton waited in the car. Clyde forced the manager to open the vault while Faults guarded the two customers that had entered while the robbery was in progress. The vault, unlike the safe, was not empty. They were out of town before the guard even arrived at work. They drove straight on to Illinois before stopping and counting the loot. $33,000. Now this, this changed Hamilton's mind. Banks were the way to go. He wanted to hit more banks straight away. Clyde and Fultz refused. They had enough money now for the prison break. Fultz knew a pawnbroker who fenced high caliber weapons. They were looking for some forty-five pistols, Tommy guns, and some bulletproof vests. Raymond Hamilton didn't want anything to do with this prison break, so he took his share and split. Driving to the town of Denton, they met with four men. Johnny Russell, Jack Hammett, Ralph Alsop, and Ted Rogers. They all joined Clyde and Vaults to form the Lake Dallas Group. They stopped by Lake Dallas and tested out the bulletproof vests and weapons though not by wearing them and shooting each other. This story would be a little bit shorter if that were the case, since the vests weren't actually really good and they were easily punctured by the bullets. But they may have actually been fine because a lot of the guns themselves had problems with shooting and frequently jammed. To buy some replacement equipment, the group went to hit two banks at the same time, but were spooked away by some Texas Rangers in the area. Clyde suspected an informer in the group but pushed on. He, Fultz, and another man they picked up named Red, headed for Amarillo to scout out a few more hands, only to end a disappointment when they couldn't find them. They turned back and headed towards Dallas. Their car broke down in the town of Electra. No problem, they could easily steal another car, but a resident thought that they looked suspicious and called the sheriff James Taylor. Taylor, along with J.C. Harris, went and checked it out. Taylor pulled up alongside them and asked them if they had a problem. Fultz explained that their car had simply died, and made a point to tell him that they were travelling from Wichita Falls. The sheriff didn't like the look of them, and said he would need to take them into custody and check out their story. That's when Clyde pulled himself a 45 and told the sheriff and Harris to put their hands up. Fultz took the resident who had reported at McCormick, hostage too. They piled into McCormick's car, barely fitting. There would have been absolutely no room for Red if he had managed to stick around, but as soon as he saw a gun, he hightailed it into the bush. Clyde later decided that Red was the traitor who tipped the Texas Rangers to the planned bank robberies. As they drove out of town, Clyde repeatedly apologised for the inconvenience this was to the captives. Twelve clicks out of town, they stopped and let the men out, keeping their weapons. A little into the trip back, Their car ran out of gasoline. A car rolled up beside them, and Clyde and Fultz forced Bill Owens over at gunpoint and took the car. Now, the the duo did run into a bit of trouble at the Texas-Oklahoma border, spot bit more than before, where they blasted through a toll booth, and the bridge guards actually fired at the car. They missed, but bulletins were put out listing the car's description. Pulling off the side of the road, they told Owens to get out. Owens asked for his postage bag, and they handed it over. Owens then asked what they planned to do with the car. Clyde told them that they would abandon the car in plain sight so that it was easily found and could be returned to him. Owens asked for a favour. Could you burn the car instead of just abandoning it? The state would have to buy Owens a new one if it was completely destroyed. Clyde thought this was rather funny. A day later, the car was found smouldering nearby. Clyde and Foltz didn't have their high-caliber weapons, and they were down two men that they hoped to get, plus red. Bonnie was then called into action, albeit in a relatively safe way. April 17, Clyde and Foltz drove Bonnie to the farm to talk to Scaly. With the inside aware of the breakout, they went to a nearby town of Tyler and stole two fast cars. They stopped in the town of Kuffman, to steal some more weapons. Kuffman had a night watchman who saw the two cars parked out front of a hardware store and two men just sort of milling, hanging about. He approached with his gun drawn. It began to rain as Clyde figured out an escape route. The main highways were blocked so they needed to go through the back roads. The dirt come mud roads sank the cars. Everyone got out and made for a nearby farmhouse around 1am in the morning. A farmer opened the door. He didn't have a car, but did offer them two mules. Bonnie and Clyde got on one and Foltz on the other. They went the direction of the next town over, Kemp. A car belonging to the local doctor, Scarsdale, was an easy steal, but it also ran out of petrol just outside of town. The Marshal of Kemp formed a posse with local citizens and began to hunt the thieves. Bonnie, Clyde, and Foltz had no option but to hide in the sticks. And they were undetected until 5pm when they ran across the road to a small store on the other side. Before Clyde could hotwire a car, they were spotted. And in an effort to deter the posse, Foltz and Clyde began shooting over their heads. The posse, not taking too kindly at being shot at, shot back. Foltz was hit in his left arm. The only option that Clyde could see was to flee, but he really couldn't take bonnie with him the chance of the posse hitting bonnie was way too high he had to abandon them both getting out clyde stole a car and went to west dallas fault's told bonnie to give herself up they were both dragged into camp and locked in a cell together in the town's only cell bonnie asks for someone to look at fault's arm the local doctor scarsdale refused to look at him obviously salty over his car
0: Someday they'll go down together, they'll bury them side by side. To few it'll be grief, to the law a relief, but it's death for Bonnie and Clyde.
1: Clyde's gang was in the shitter. Fultz and Bonnie were captured, Jack Hammett hadn't got the guns he promised, and Ted Rogers and Johnny Russell had no idea where Ralph was. April 20th, Clyde, Rogers and Russell hit a hardware store that Hammett was supposed to. They managed to get away with some rifles and shotguns. They also broke into the drugstore next door and took $14 from the town's mayor. The following day, they tested out the guns. The shots alarmed some locals, and the sheriff went to check it out. The remainder of the Barrow Gang had to abandon their newly bagged weapons. Jack Hammett and Ralph Alsop drove up looking for their partners. The sheriff arrested them and took possession of the Ford V8 that Clyde had stolen on his trip back to West Dallas. If the plans hadn't fallen apart already, they certainly would over the next few days. All the stolen equipment was confirmed by their owners. Sheriff Taylor confirmed Fultz as one of the kidnappers, as did Bill Owens. The crimes had been linked. Hammett, Alsop, and Fultz faced some lengthy prison terms. Fultz was moved to Wichita Falls, and Bonnie had been moved to Kaufman Jail. Just so we're all on the same page, here's where we're at. The Eastham raid? No longer a thing. Clyde was wanted by the Dallas police for the Sims refinery job, though he hadn't been identified as part of the other crimes. Fault had been uh, convicted of kidnapping and multiple burglary attempts. Now, Bonnie. Bonnie told the lawman that she had been kidnapped and forced to accompany her captors. Quote, captors. She had a clean record and was courteous in jail. She would certainly look guilty if Clyde tried to break her out now. He would wait until the grand jury's verdict. If they chose to indict, Clyde would then break her out. June 17, the grand jury convened. Bonnie began writing poetry, a hobby which she would keep during her time with Clyde. Clyde got ready for a quick hit robbery, after which he would go to Witcher Falls for Fultz's breakout. Clyde gathered Ted Rogers and Johnny Russell and went to hit a general store. The store had musical instruments, watches, necklaces, and plenty of valuable items that, rest assured, will be hidden in the safe. Clyde wanted to call it off when the wife of the owner was eyeing them a little too closely. The others, however, were keen to get the job done. At 10pm on April 30th, they drove up to the butcher store. Russell and Rogers banged on the door. It wasn't uncommon during this time for owners, ones that slept above the uh, shop, the story above, to open up outside of the hours for customers. The boys said that they wanted to buy guitar strings. Eh, no problem, but the strings were only a quarter and the boys had only a $10 bill. Mr. Butcher would have to get change. As he was doing that, Mrs. Butcher emerged from the stairs and the boys pulled their guns. Mr. Butcher went to the safe and opened it. In addition to jewellery and money, there was a gun. He reached for it, and Ted Rogers fired. Mr. Butcher would bleed out before he could receive medical help. Clyde heard the shot and saw the boys running out. He drove out of there. Their take was $40 cash and around $1,500 in jewellery. Splitting their takes, the group then themselves split. Mrs Butcher was shown a bunch of mugshots from criminals in the area. She picked out Clyde, despite the fact that he was the getaway driver and nothing more. There was a $250 reward for the capture and conviction of Clyde, authorised quite an amount when the typical amount was $25 to $50 for a typical murder suspect. And the news went round West Dallas. They all knew that Clyde was wanted for murder. Early May, Clyde received word from Fault saying, Don't stress about the breakout. I've organised it myself. Through the rest of May and the first couple of weeks of June, a series of small hold-ups can be linked to Clyde. June 17, Bonnie was called before a grand jury. Again, she swore that she had been kidnapped and forced to ride along with them. The grand jury ordered her release. As soon as she could, she contacted Clyde and told him she was ready to join him again. Raymond Hamilton was also ready to join back up. Mid-July, Clyde and Raymond rented a small house in Wichita Falls. This became like a temporary base of operations while committing a series of armed robberies. Bonnie joined them at the hideout. Their first job, they scored a whole $12 and added Ross Dyer to their team as a getaway driver. The next job saw a take of $440, a little bit better. They then took a stolen car north with no particular destination in mind. Seeing a party or event lighting up in the distance, the boys decided that they wanted to dance, and dance they did with some local girls. Now, possibly fueled by whiskey, despite the prohibition, the locals weren't... All too keen with some strangers dancing with the women, if you get what I mean. The county sheriff, Eugene Moore, and Charlie Maxwell decided to do something before basically everything popped off. Their plan was to arrest the newcomers for drinking and throw them in a cell before the locals could get a little too riled up. Maxwell strolled over to Clyde and Raymond. Dyer was about 10 or so metres away. Maxwell put his foot up on the Ford's running board and told the boys that they were under arrest. They pulled their guns and began firing. Ellis said that the sheriff's body went back, flying off the running board. Onlooker Henry Bryant picked up a sheriff's gun and started shooting at Clyde and Raymond. Moore ran up, firing his pistol as Clyde slammed the Ford into gear, trying to speed off. But unfortunately for Clyde, the front tire hit a waterway and the car overturned. The boy scrambled out, bullets from Bryant and Moore flying overhead. Returning fire and hitting more, they then ran into the bush. Maxwell managed to survive despite the six new holes in him. A local bootlegger, quote, poured whiskey down him, which I don't know if that means that he gave him just a lot of whiskey to drink, or if he literally poured whiskey onto the sheriff's wounds. Either way, he survived. And Moore was dead the moment he had been hit. Hopping stolen cars, Clyde and Raymond stayed ahead of the manhunt. Dyer sank into the crowd during the commotion and caught a boss back to Texas. He was picked up in McKinney and taken for questioning. The Barrow's family assumed it was him that identified Clyde and Raymond as the shooters. However, the police found out an Oklahoma newspaper identified Clyde Barrow wanted for murder of Jay Butcher, as the main suspect of the killing of Moore. Now Clyde crossed the line at this point. If he was caught before this, he might have been able to get away with life in prison. See it was just a civilian that he murdered, nothing too major. Now with the death of a lawman under his belt, there was no doubt that he would fry if he were caught. They had to get away from Oklahoma and fast. Clyde sent Raymond ahead to pick up Bonnie. They met up August 6th, and from that point on, she wasn't just Clyde's girlfriend who once delivered a message for a job, she became an active member of the Barrow gang.
0: Someday they'll go down together, they'll bury them side by side. To few it'll be grief, to the law a relief, but it's death for Bonnie and Clyde.
1: Bonnie's aunt, a last named Millie Stamps, Opened the door to her house in New Mexico to find Bonnie just there, asking to crash. She had brought her husband and her friend, James White and Jack Smith. Interstate communications between police were terrible, so they could lay low there for a little bit anyway. From the very beginning, though, Millie was suspicious. Bonnie and her husband were driving a brand new car that seemed a little too nice. There seemed to be a lot of money to go around between the three of them, and... Probably more importantly, the car was filled with guns, which, much to the irritation of Millie, they used in target shooting at the back. That's right, Clyde never really learnt what laying low entailed. He would constantly bring attention to himself. So Millie Stamps did what any law abiding citizen would do she asked Deputy Joe Johns to check them out. It didn't help that since they had arrived in town, there had been a string of car thefts in nearby towns. On August 14, at 9am, he drove over and knocked on the door. Bonnie answered, and he asked if he could talk to the men about the Ford parked outside. Bonnie replied, the car was their property. And the men were inside getting dressed. There'll be just a moment. Johns poked around the V8 as Clyde and Raymond left the house through the back door. They circled around the house and threatened the deputy after getting the drop on him. See, there had been a shotgun stashed in the closet in their house, as all their their own guns were in the car that the deputy was standing between. The shotgun was fired in the air as a warning, and Johns raised his hands smartly in surrender. Clyde, Raymond, and Bonnie then forced Johns into the Ford, and Clyde drove towards Texas, specifically the town of San Antonio. It was a longer-than-expected trip since Clyde stuck to back roads. They reached the town on the night of the 14th. A search was then started for them. A few hours after searching, a couple of truckers found a headless corpse outside of El Paso. Everyone assumed it was John's. Millie identified her niece, Bonnie Parker, of Dallas, and they knew that they had driven away in a Ford with Texas plates. Texas lawmen were all over this. They knew exactly who it was. In San Antonio, the deputy was cooperating, even suggesting alternative routes that would keep them out of the eyes of the highwaymen. Clyde looked around town for another V8 to replace his current, battered one. He gave up and ordered Johns out of the car, about 25 k's out of town. The deputy had to hike several clicks to a series of farms to find someone with a working phone. He called the San Antonio police, who, as you can guess, were surprised to hear from a dead man A headless dead man at that. Immediately, the police set up roadblocks on the main highway between San Antonio and Dallas. Clyde drove southeast instead. They did find a new Ford V8 a few hours away from San Antonio. Raymond drove the new car ahead, and Bonnie and Clyde remained in the old car. It wasn't a clean getaway by any stretch. The owner had seen them and informed the authorities, and they now had the description of both cars. A couple of Wharton police tried to lay a trap at the bridge that ran over the Colorado River. The plan was for one officer to stand at the beginning of the bridge and would signal when the car was coming to the other, who would pull their car into the way, blocking the end of the bridge. Clyde spotted them instantly. He chucked a U.E. in a feat that officers comment as, quote, remarkable. Clyde was certainly a good driver. Raymond was not able to replicate the U-turn and had to make a three-pointer. The officers got a couple of shots off. Nothing connecting. One of the Fords was found the next day. Bonnie, Clyde and Raymond had their names and descriptions plastered all over the newspapers that day. They were frequently mentioned on the radio. On their way back to Dallas, they took the time to break into a State Guard armory and got their hands on some Browning automatic rifles. This was the first time, but not the least, we hear about Clyde breaking into a state guard armory. Now, you see, okay, little bit of backstory here. Most Texan towns had these state-owned weapon caches uh, intended to arm civilian militias in the event of emergencies. What was a couple of locks for Clyde would turn out to be a ton of legal tape for local cops. Raymond then split from the gang again, wanting to head back to Michigan. They dropped Raymond off, and he kinda just lingered in the countryside. They lived off as of small takes from petrol stations and small country stores. Now there was one little slip up that Clyde made during this time that would put him on the hook for a federal crime, which would make things very difficult for him in the future. One abandoned car had some medication with his name on it. Clyde could now legally be pursued anywhere for however long by the US Justice Department's new division of investigation, headed at the time by J. Edgar Hoover. Though at this point in their careers, federal agents weren't exactly worried about a small fish like Clyde Barrow. The tour with Bonnie became sort of a vacation. They visited tourist sites, stayed in flash motor courts, cottages, fully furnished for a night or two on the road, sent postcards to their family. If they couldn't get themselves a motor court, they would find a secluded farmhouse and ask permission to spend the night. No one ever had any reason to expect ill intent. After all, they were dressed to the nines and driving a flash car. Bonnie and Clyde always paid their hosts for their board. Sometimes it was just a couple of dollars, sometimes it was food that they had with them. Occasionally, if they had a spare, they would gift a shotgun or a pistol. If anyone expected them of being wanted criminals, they didn't care. Struggling farmers would happily accept a few dollars, and in the words of N.W.A., fuck the police. They enforced the foreclosure of farms, forcing good people out. Now, if a farmhouse wasn't an option, they would camp out in the car. Clyde tried to find spots near the creeks to bathe in. Bonnie wasn't exactly happy when they had to do this. She took to drinking during this time. Sometimes they would argue, sometimes they would swing, Bonnie hitting just as much as Clyde did. But for the most part, they tried to keep each other happy. Clyde brought Bonnie a typewriter, and she would work in her poems in the back seat while Clyde drove. In October, they began their way back to Texas. They met with their families on Halloween. There wasn't any good news there. Elsie, his younger brother, was in jail under suspicion for boosting cars, and Clyde was wanted for yet another murder.
0: Someday they'll go down together. They'll bury them side by side. To few it'll be grief, to the law a relief, but it's death for Bonnie and Clyde.
1: Now, during this trip, uh, while Bonnie and Clyde are going about their vacation, quote, uh, it's good a point as any to talk about the journalists. Now, the journalists weren't above warping facts to make a good story, and... This is very much how the sensationalization of Bonnie and Clyde started. With two murders, and now the kidnapping of a deputy followed by a high-speed chase, the papers painted Clyde as sort of a will-o'-wisp bandit, happy to trade bullets when capture threatens. Texan newspapers told of how Mrs. Butcher ran to her husband as Clyde's bullet pierced his heart and he fell to the ground, how Clyde had told her to get away or, quote, I'll give you some of the same. Sheriff Maxwell had apparently called out Clyde for drinking, telling him he couldn't do that here, only for Clyde to reply, quote, We can't, can't we, before letting out a blast of gunfire. One federal wanted poster listed his female companion as Miss Roy Harding. Stories from Wharton at the bridge reported Clyde and Raymond fired first. Plenty of people over in Texas would have believed that too. Like a modern day ghost, Clyde could appear anywhere and take anyone down. During this time, scores of holdups and shootouts were attributed to them that they, quite frankly, didn't do. Sheriff Mosley was shot at in September and reported three people, one of which might be been a woman. Raymond was out by the time that this happened. Very clearly, not them. And while fingerprinting technology was a thing by this time, most towns didn't really have the ability to dust for them. Eyewitness accounts were the sole means of identification, and a lot of eyewitnesses happened to see deadly Clyde Barrow. Police came across a murder on the 11th of October, 1932, and determined that it was Clyde's MO. Homer Glaze and Howard Hall were working when a man walked in and demanded that they give him money in the register. $60 $60 in total. He grabbed the money and left, but Hall followed, yelling at him. Glaze reports that the five-foot-six man then fired two shots, killing Hall. Glaze pointed to Clyde's mugshot when shown. In addition to the bounty for his capture, there was also a $200 reward for information leading to his capture. Clyde must have certainly robbed a store like that, but it wasn't very typical for him to shoot a man that wasn't immediately threatening his life. Thing is, as much as a monster as the police tried to make him out to be, the papers kind of worked harder to sensationalise it to sell, sell, sell. Bonnie and Clyde began saving newspaper articles which they would reread. Uh, police often found these clippings sort of tucked away in the abandoned stolen cars. Bonnie wanted everyone to like her, Clyde wanted to be intimidating like his heroes Jesse James and Billy the Kid. Now very much like... Jesse James and Billy the Kid, Clyde wanted himself a full-fledged gang to control. Before leaving West Dallas on Halloween, Bonnie and Clyde recruited two more partners, Frank Hardy and Hollis Hale. They made their way to Missouri to target a carefully selected bank. The men broke into the bank. It was empty. One person was cleaning up. The institution you see had failed a few days ago, and, as the cashier put out, There simply was no money in the bank. The next bank, on November 29th, Bonnie was sent to Recon. 11.30 the following day, things didn't really work out. Hale was outside of the car while Clyde and Hardy went in. While there was only one customer in the bank, the teller had a pistol handy. He dropped behind the lead-lined counter and started blasting. Thankfully for Clyde... His gun jammed after a few shots. Clyde then fired back, but the bullets bounced off the counter. Hardy made a grab for the money in the register and managed to cut his hand on the broken glass smashed by Clyde's shots. The alarm sounded as they ran out to the car. Several citizens nearby were armed and began firing at them. Nobody was hit, and no one bothered to chase them. The Carthage paper reported the take was a little less than 500 bucks. In reality, it was $110. But Clyde? Clyde was happy with the job. No one had gotten seriously hurt, after all. And they had a little bit of money. Hardy and Hale were not happy. They assumed that running with a gang would score them big time. The Baker gang recently stole quarter of a million in Kansas. Think about that job, along with other jobs pulled off by the likes of Dillinger or Floyd... They paid police off, or, and sometimes in conjunction with, colluded with bank workers or managers. Those gangs never randomly picked a bank, rolled in, and took the money. It was all carefully crafted so that everyone involved had their pockets lined. Back at the motor court where they were staying, they lied to Clyde and told him that they had got only $80, which was split three ways and they pocketed the rest. They told Clyde that they were going to go get some ammunition and left. They never returned to the gang. Bonnie and Clyde made their way back to Texas.
0: Someday they'll go down together, they'll bury them side by side. To few it'll be grief, to the law a relief, but it's death for Bonnie and Clyde.
1: Raymond could not resist. The life of crime. He returned about a month after leaving Bonnie and Clyde. October 8th, he single-handedly held up a bank by taking the two bank staffers and two customers by surprise and snagged himself $1,401. November 9th, he, along with a new partner, Gene O'Dare, robbed another bank and made off with $1,061. November 25th, they took up the first bank again, The teller remembered Raymond, who told him that he wanted a quick stick-up, this time quicker than the last. The job netted him $1,802. Taking a break in Michigan, Richmond pursued some local girls. One of them wasn't really impressed with his charms and wards of cash, so Raymond, rather smartly, boasted about his bank jobs. Really good call there, Raymond. She went straight to the police and told them everything, for he had given her all the details. December 6th, police surrounded the ice rink that Raymond and O'Dare were hanging out at and took them prisoner. Now the newspapers went absolutely wild with the story. Every article linked Raymond with Clyde. And these articles made their way around the country. That's how Clyde learned that Raymond was in custody. Now he didn't like Raymond, so he probably didn't care too much. But guilt got the best of him. Raymond didn't deserve jail time, or to fry because of John Butcher, and Clyde knew it. He felt obligated to rescue him. Stroke of luck, that he would be transferred to a smaller, less secure, Hillsborough jail for a spell. Buddy and Clyde went back to West Dallas, recruiting a childhood friend named W.D. Jones that they could use as a lookout. Now, as a sort of initiation, WD went on a quick job with Clyde, but he froze when they were in the store. Clyde called him a coward and they began driving around town looking for another target. It was then that Clyde spotted a Model A with the keys in the ignition. If WD wanted to get home, he'd have to steal a Model A first. Now, Model As, if you weren't aware, uh, were a bitch to start. It wasn't just a case of turning the key. Now, you had to pull out the choke while pressing down with both the clutch and the accelerator. If done just right, the car takes a screenshot. WD jumped into the Model A, and to the surprise of no one, the car couldn't start. Clyde jumped out and joined WD in the front seat. The owner, Doyle Johnson, was inside taking a nap. The rest of his family wasn't. Father-in-law, Henry Krauser, looked outside and saw Clyde and WD messing about with the car. Krauser and his son, Johnson's wife, ran outside. Clyde jumped out of the Model A and pulled out a pistol, telling them to stay back. Johnson was up and outside by this time and rushed to the car. He managed to get a grip on Clyde's neck. Bonnie screamed and started the engine. Depending on who was telling the story, either Clyde or WD shot Johnson in the gut several times, At least one bullet shattering his spinal cord. He died soon after. Clyde and WD made off with the car. Bonnie following. After all that, they abandoned the car down the road. After that event, Clyde turned his attention to Raymond.
0: Someday they'll go down together. They'll bury them side by side. To few it'll be grief, to the law a relief... But it's death for Bonnie and Clyde.
1: Lillian McBride, at Clyde's request, gave her brother Raymond a radio with some hacksaws in them. December 6th, a Dallas County deputy called the McBride house and asked Lillian a few questions. He was simply getting up lay of the house. Clyde, Bonnie, and WD drove around later that afternoon and were informed that Lillian was out. They, they were told she would be back later. At 11pm, five men posse arrived at the house. W.T. Evans, J.F. Van Noy, Fred Bradbury, Dusty Rhodes, and Malcolm Davis set up an ambush, hoping to catch Odell Chambles. He was a friend of Lillian's who was wanted for some stuff. The family was ordered to turn off all the lights, but one of them left a red light on, insisting that it was a nightlight on the top story. Now this was an old West Dallas signal that the law was lurking nearby. An hour later, a Ford pulled around, no lights on. It kept driving around the corner. A few minutes later, it was back, and it stopped. Clyde got out, shotgun by his side, and walked up the porch. Maggie Ferris swung open the door and screamed for them to not hurt her babies. Clyde swung his shotgun up and fired through the front window. The lawmen threw themselves onto the floor. Clyde tried to fire again, but the gun jammed. Behind the house, Davis and Rhodes drew their guns and ran around the house. Clyde cleared the spent cartridge, chambered a new shell, and blasted a hole in Davis's chest. At point-blank range. Clyde's next shot missed Rhodes as he dropped to the ground. The leftover men were up and shooting. Clyde slipped between the houses and got away. Bonnie told WD to stop shooting and they fled the scene, picking up Clyde around the block. He took over driving and they sped out of town. Lillian McBride got home at 3am and was arrested as an accessory and held while Sheriff Schmid tried to figure out what had happened. January 8th, Raymond was caught using hacksaws and was transferred to a more secure Dallas County Jail. Clyde had killed a man for... Essentially, no reason. Early reports blamed the family for warning Davis's killer. The red light was front and center of every story. Now, by this time, it was fairly common knowledge that Clyde Barrow always came back to West Dallas to visit his family, but Sheriff Schmid didn't really have the manpower to keep an eye on the Barrows 24 7. He would enlist instead the help of someone who knew the families extremely well to give him advanced intel. Ted Hinton.
0: Someday they'll go down together. They'll bury them side by side. To few it'll be grief, to the law a relief, but it's death for Bonnie and Clyde.
1: Now outside of West Dallas, Clyde managed to get stuck in mud again. They borrowed a mule and ended up back on the road. There's a string of service station stickups. That traced them through oklahoma arkansas and missouri despite his skill at hot wiring cars they had so much baggage to swap out including all their weapons and ammunition so they would extend out the life of their vehicle by regularly changing out the license plates clyde always drove and they would drive until clyde felt tired bonnie often ran as navigator It was this time that a rather famous photo of Bonnie was taken by W.D. I'll just link that in the description of this podcast. January 26th, 1933, in Springfield, Missouri, Thomas Parcell was on a motorcycle patrol around 6pm. He noticed three persons in a V8 Ford looking at cars in a rather suspicious manner. He followed the car as they drove away. Just before a bridge, the motorcyclist rode alongside the car and indicated that they needed to pull over. Clyde kept going until he was over the bridge where he pulled over. Clyde and WD greeted the officer with pistols and ordered him to get in the car. Five hours after they abducted the man, the battery in the car died. Just outside of town, Clyde told WD to walk into town and steal a battery from another car. Oh, and he had to take Parcel with him. Which seems like an odd decision, if you ask me. Either way, they got the battery and hauled it back. They drove to the town of Joplin and dropped Parcell off in town. Parcel asked them if they would give him his gun back, as it had custom grips and were quite expensive. Clyde shook his head and drove away. Without an informant in place or the manpower to watch the houses, Bonnie and Clyde were able to sneak into West Dallas for visits at least once a month. During these visits, they would give their families money, up to $1,000 depending on how their month was going. Late March 1933, the Barrow gang added two more members to their ranks, Buck Barrow and his wife, Blanche. Now Buck Barrow had been given a pardon for his crimes, not parole, a full pardon. A very generous governor. They would start their life fresh. So Buck and Blanche were at her family's farm, discussing the future, how Buck wished to talk to Clyde to try and set him straight. At midnight, there was a knock on the door, and lo and behold, it's Clyde. Clyde and Bonnie and W.D. They heard of Buck's pardon. Blanche was not happy when Buck invited them in. Clyde and W.D. carried shotguns in with them. Bonnie was drunk. Clyde began to talk about his plan to raid Eastern Prison. He was back on that train. Blanche wanted nothing of it. Clyde, Buck, and WD went outside and returned at 4 a.m. Clyde had a new proposal. He wanted Buck and Blanche to join them in Missouri for a few weeks. Just a few weeks. They wanted to rent an apartment and just chill. Clyde promised Blanche that he wouldn't involve Buck in any burglaries And he would keep most of the guns locked in his car so Blanche wouldn't have to be around them. Buck saw this as a chance to talk to his brother. If Blanche let him go, she could bring her dog. And so on April 1st, Buck and Blanche rented an apartment in Joplin. It was a nice little place. It had two bedrooms and a small living room, a kitchenette and a bathroom. There was a $50 tag on the month's lease. There was a garage for one of the cars, um, the stolen one. Ironically, the area was a well-to-do place and had a hired or night watchman to keep an eye out for crooks who might just steal cars. April 7th saw legislation that allowed beer, and only beer, to be sold for the first time since the Prohibition. Everyone except Blanche celebrated with drinks. She really wanted to get back to Texas before anything bad happened, but Buck wasn't ready to leave just yet. He was sure that he could convince Clyde to turn himself in and plead guilty for an easy charge. Clyde was certain that he would get the chair. Even if he didn't, he could not handle any more time in prison. He would rather die. Now, despite his promise not to get Buck involved, there were several robberies in the area, and one night the boys returned with some BARs from the National Guard Armory. Blanche was not happy. On April 12th, they made a new deal with the neighbour to take over their side of the garage to house their new V8, a car that WD had stolen a couple of towns over. If the police weren't already surveilling the group, then the new V8 certainly would have raised suspicions. Now you see, two weeks after they had moved in, Clyde was cleaning one of the rifles when he accidentally fired a quick burst of shots. Someone complained to the police about it, and the police then staked someone out across the road. The robberies and stolen cars and the guns began about the same time that these people had begun renting the apartment. So the night that WD stole the car, Bonnie and Clyde had a domestic. They soon made up, but the following morning, Clyde announced that the holiday was over. Everyone, pack up, we're going home. Buck said he and Blanche would be heading straight back to Texas, but wanted to leave the following day just so that they could pack and get themselves all comfy. April 13th, Buck packed in the morning. 4pm in the afternoon, when Buck took a nap, Clyde and WD went for another quick job for some travelling money. They were gone for a couple of minutes before the car screeched back in the driveway. It had itself some engine troubles. They were pulling the garage door down, when law enforcement veered into the driveway. G.B. Keller and W.E. Grimer were in the lead. Tom DeGraff and Henry McGinnis were in the second car. Wes Harriman sat in the back with them. All officers had themselves small-caliber handguns. None of the men expected trouble, despite the fact that they suspected them of raiding the weapons cache. Harriman drew his weapon and tried to duck inside under the garage door. Shotgun pellets struck his shoulder and neck, and he would bleed to death as the fight continued. McGuinness fired through the garage window. WD was hitting his side. Clyde fired back with the shotgun and hit McGuinness in the face, left side, and the right arm, which almost completely ripped off his torso. DeGraff got out of the car and fired a couple of shots. DeGraff told Grammar to find a phone and call for backup as they circled around the house. The women were ordered to get into the car. Blanche's dress was splattered with WD's blood. He was bleeding heavily and wanted to help Buck and Clyde push the car out of the way. Across the street, Keller fired his revolver. The bullet hit Clyde on a button on his t-shirt, which absorbed pretty much most of the force and barely broke his skin. Buck dragged McGinnis' body out of the way and then helped Clyde in returning shotgun fire towards Keller. Blanche was yanked into the car, and the gang was gone. What happened to Blanche's dog will forever remain a mystery. Harriman was pronounced dead at the scene. McGinnis was rushed to the hospital before dying six hours later. The remaining men found a cache of guns in the garage. Rifles, shotguns, pistols, a couple of BARs, and in the apartment they found Buck and Blanche's marriage license, as well as a letter of pardon... Buck had received from the governor. Bulletins went out for lawmen to look out for either Buck or Clyde Barrow. The bulletins also identified Blanche and Bonnie as the women travelling with them. According to newspapers, Buck was the ringleader. The reward for the capture of the Barrows jumped up to $600.
0: Someday they'll go down together. They'll bury them side by side. To few it'll be grief, To the law a relief, but it's death for Bonnie and Clyde.
1: Now it's okay to cringe at the next part. Clear from immediate pursuit, Clyde checked out WD's wounds. Now they weren't 100% sure if the bullet was still lodged in his uh, side. What to do, what to do, what to do. Clyde figured out what to do. Uh, Of course they weren't able to take him to the doctor, no not as wanted men. Clyde instead grabbed a stick and wrapped it in some cloth. Then he pushed the stick through the bullet wound until the stick just poked out. There wasn't any slug when he pushed it out, so must have gone clean through. Some aspirin they would pick up later became WD's only real treatment. Throw a couple of that in you, you'll be right. Stopping at a motor court outside of the town of Shamrock, Bonnie was able to clean the men's wounds. They were only there for a couple of hours before leaving to camp in the car later that night, when Clyde and Buck went into town and knocked off a store. They then travelled, New Mexico, Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa, Illinois, before doubling back through Missouri, Arkansas, Oklahoma, and Louisiana. When they ran out of money, they simply robbed the closest service station or store. The papers started circulating the story about the shootout with photos retrieved from the apartment. Bonnie stood standing one foot on a car, revolver in hand, cigar in the mouth, and was promptly featured on all the wanted posters. People, I cannot express this enough, ate this story up. Contemporary crooks were feared, of course, and some even had some real charisma. But Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow had something that none of the others could provide to the papers and their readers. Pure sex. You see, they were young They were unmarried, and a girl who smoked cigars would have no reservations with sleeping outside of marriage. Writers latched onto this angle and spun all sorts of lurid stories involving them. Now, compound this with the dime novels of the day seeping into popular culture, Bonnie and Clyde's image was very much false even during their early days. Many people considered their attacks on banks and law enforcement as exacting revenge on behalf of the common man and not some sort of selfish attempt at some easy cash. Bonnie would have been ecstatic at the newsreels dedicated to her that ran before every movie. She was on the silver screen. Even in the early days, Bonnie and Clyde's escapades were beholden to more myth than fact. Amongst the public, they pictured the couple holed up in a luxury hotel, dressed to the nines, and shooting with deadly efficiency.
0: Someday they'll go down together, they'll bury them side by side. To few it'll be grief, to the law a relief, but it's death for Bonnie and Clyde.
1: WD ended up separated from the others when he stole another car. Dilar Darby, owner of the vehicle, followed WD before losing him. Clyde's car rolled up behind them and asked Darby, why were you following WD? Darby told them that, that's my car. Clyde drove over the state line into Arkansas. Ever social Bonnie kept the prisoners entertained. By the time Clyde stopped to let the hostages go, they were all on pleasant terms. Driving for a moment before throwing the car in verse and backing up, Clyde asked Dolby if he had enough money to get home. Dolby. Upturned his pockets, found a quarter. Clyde gave the man a $5 bill and then sped off. They were soon spotted and shot out by local police. Buck brandished his BAR but held his fire. The Barrow gang preferred flight instead of fight. With no sight of WD, they figured, eh, he'll just go back to West Dallas, and they decided to follow suit. Uh, Upon reaching home, Cumi pleaded for him to give up, give himself up. Clyde told her that he would write and sign a statement swearing that Buck and Blanche had just been visiting and were not part of the gang and had nothing to do with it. He wouldn't give himself up, though. Buck wasn't convinced that that plan would work, and so the gang sped off. Out in West Dallas, they laid low on the road. Now, probably as proof as to why these were kids and not professionals, most public enemies at the time had themselves safe houses where they could bunker down to heal and let the heat cool off. Now, the most common was St. Paul in Kansas City, where everyone from Dillinger to Pretty Boy Floyd would stay. Payoffs to local cops kept them from turning the criminals over, you see, and Bonnie and Clyde had to risk the possibility of being seen if they wanted to chill in relative comfort. If they had some bunts behind them and knew some connections, they could have easily gotten themselves into St. Paul, but rather, they had no idea what they were doing. Now, that isn't to say that these guys didn't stay anywhere nice. Farmhouses would often put them up for the night. Only one night, the barry Gang didn't spend more than a single night in that one place. Bonnie would take this opportunity with the country folk to clean up her image. She told just about anyone who would listen that she positively did not smoke cigars. She did drink quite a bit, though, but she took the habit of chewing on lemon peel after to marks the drinking smell. This was a fairly well-known trick that most Texan girls knew, but Bonnie did it quite enough and left enough evidence that Lawman came to know it as sort of like a quirk that she had. If any farmers read their description in the magazines or dime novels, they might have expected a real-life femme fatale, a Rita Hayworth or a Carol Lombard. In truth, though, she wasn't too hard on the eyes, But Blanche Barrow was said to be the prettier of the two. And because she liked to talk, people began to associate her with the brains to Clyde's brawn. You see, most famous uh, contemporaries worked in couples, one of them acting as an enforcer and the other acting as more of a planner. On May 11th, the gang tried another bank job that resulted in two deaths. Buck and Clyde hid inside the shop and waited until morning. Everett, Greg, and Lawson Selders arrived at 7.30 in the morning. Clyde and Buck, hoping to get the drop, jumped out and asked for everyone's hands up. They didn't know about the hidden rifle. Why should they? They only spent the entire night in there. They couldn't have checked for concealed weapons or anything at the time. Bonnie and Blanche pulled up outside to Clyde and Buck running away from a man taking shots at them. They jumped in the car and drove off. Clyde swerved into a yard, avoiding a lump of wood that someone had just thrown at the car. A man jumped onto the bonnet, and Clyde screamed for Bonnie to shoot him. Bonnie fired some wild shots, but would tell her mother months later that she swore she missed every single shot. As Clyde roared down the road, they turned a corner to find the road filled with herded pigs. Clyde kept driving, hitting and killing two hogs. They tried again a week later, this time at a different bank. Their stupid plan of just waiting and hiding until the morning, this time it actually worked. They made off with $1,600, half of which was in silver dollar coins. Despite, or maybe because of, this being their most successful bank robbery, the Barrow Gang weren't initially blamed for it. May 22, they were back in West Dallas and giving their family large shares of their takings. Emma had a moment in, of private with Bonnie where she pleaded with her to leave Clyde and go to the police. Bonnie would have none of it. If it were inevitable that Clyde would die, she would die with him. Kumi did the same with Buck with about the same amount of success. Buck said that the four of them would be together until the law caught them and took them down. Back on the road, they stole another car so Buck and Clyde wouldn't have to ride together all the time. Like lots of brothers, they sometimes fought. They took it easy. They spent a lot of time at the beach. There's a rather saucy photo of Blanche and some swimwear out there. I'll link it in the podcast description. Clyde split off from Buck for a spell to retrieve WD. Now, Buck didn't like WD and thought he would eventually squeal on them. June 10th, they all met up again. That night, Clyde was racing down the road when he missed a detour sign saying that the road was out. Bonnie was in front with him, and WD was in the back. The car hit a wood barrier indicating the end of the road. The car was launched into the air. As it hit the rocky creek bed, the car rolled over a couple of times before stopping. A nearby farm heard the noise and rushed down. They pulled the passengers out. Later accounts claim that the V8 exploded into flames due to the injuries that Bonnie sustained. The V8 did not explode into flames. What had actually happened was the battery sprung a leak, coating Bonnie's right leg in battery acid. W.D. Jones later said that the, quote, the hide on her right leg was gone from her hip down to the ankle. Unquote and that he could see right to the bone in some places. They were taken to the farm, and the farmers worked on cleaning Bonnie's wound. Baking soda was used as a home remedy for burns, and in Bonnie's case, it actually helped prevent further acid damage to her legs. They, of course, like any sane, rational human being seeing an injury, wanted to call a doctor, but Clyde told them no. If she died, then she died. That's the way it had to be. W.D. went back to the car and tried to salvage the gang's guns. Now, farm patriarch Alonzo Cartwright thought that they were just a tad bit suspicious, so he snuck out and drove to Sheriff George Corey, the chief of police, Paul Hardy. They requested an ambulance and followed Alonzo back home. When they got to the house, Clyde emerged from the shadows holding his automatic rifle. Bonnie, even in her state, took the men's guns. Gladys Cartwright picked up her child and went to the kitchen. WD thought she was going for a weapon and fired his shotgun. According to the Barrow family, either her fingers or her entire hand was blown clean off. Now in reality, only a few pellets glanced off the fingers and she got away with nothing more than a few flesh wounds. The baby, don't worry, was totally fine. Climbing into the car, the Barry gang took off with three of the lawmen in tow. Clyde got cocky and asked the men if they'd ever heard of him. The lawmen played dumb and told him that the only Barry that they knew was Buck. Clyde knew that they were joking and they all had a good laugh about it. Ha 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 ha. The car pulled up to another and it was Buck and Blanche. In an effort to extend their getaway time, Clyde ordered Buck and WD to tie the two prisoners. To a tree across the field. They had to make do with some barbed wire that they found. And Clyde was not happy with them when he found out that they had used barbed wire on the men. The men, according to Clyde, weren't bad. And they'd actually gotten along on their ride there. They were okay guys. Half an hour later, Corey was free. He got to a phone and they got bulletins out. There was an emphasis on Bonnie being injured. It would be a rough few days bonnie's leg needed constant treatment and she was in agony the entire time blanche would get them fresh bandages and some ointments to try and help when they were in town if money was short buck and wd would pull a job clyde stayed at bonnie's side on june 15th they decided to risk capture they stopped to stay at the twin cities tourist camp now when they checked in Clyde told the owner that his wife had been injured when a camp stove exploded. He also requested local doctor Walter Eberly to come over and check out his wife's injuries. Eberly told Clyde to, rightly so, just get her to a hospital, man. Clyde told him that they couldn't do that. June 18th, Clyde dashed into West Dallas and talked to his family emma and billy jean parker returning to bonnie with billy jean he had a brush with ted hinton who recognized clyde driving his car wasn't fast enough though and he soon gave up the chase they arrived to quite frankly a junkie dr Eberly had prescribed bonnie a narcotic to help with the pain and she hit that shit hard her condition did improve over the next few days clyde had been cleaning the wound with disinfectant and he to his credit weaned Bonnie off the drugs. Money ran out, and he told WD and Buck to hit the town over. No major businesses, just some small service stations to keep them afloat. Buck wanted to replace his little car with a large sedan. They left for that job on the 23rd of June. WD stuck up a store and took $20 from the till. He also took the $0.35 from a boy just happened to be wandering around the store. For some dumbass reason... As he was leaving, W.D. saw a large delivery truck, a slow, useless delivery truck, and he wanted to have it. He had an unbelievably hard time getting it running. And once it was going, he just abandoned it. He ran off back to Buck. The two drove off, but not before a woman in the store called the cops and gave them descriptions of everything. W.D. and Buck would have a shootout with the area's marshal. The marshal was gravely wounded. One man dead, one fine, and WD had two of his fingertips blown clean off. Buck and WD got back to the cabin at 10pm on foot. Clyde worked quick, piling everything and everyone into the only remaining car. Well, I say everything. They didn't have the space for suitcases and guns, so Clyde would drive two of them to the camping spot, come back with the others and and get the other stuff. He left ten dollars in the drawer for bedding and sheets that he took from the apartment as well.
0: Some day they'll go down together, they'll bury them side by side. To few it'll be grief, to the law a relief, but it's death for Bonnie and Clyde.
1: June 26th, the gang nicked another car in Oklahoma. This one had a medicine bag with some morphine and some various sulfates. This would help with Bonnie, but the gang needed to replace the guns they left behind. Billie Jean was still with them too. Clyde stole another car and took her over to the Dallas line and gave her money for the train back to Dallas. The Barrow gang then continued on. July 4th, they busted some BARs and pistols out of the National Guard Armory prison. In fact, they got so many weapons from there, when they piled the guns into their apartment's bathtub, they were spilling over the edge. July 18th, they robbed three service stations within 10 minutes of taking, about $125 in total. They were really close to Kansas City, and Buck did not like that. You see, police around this time were on high alert, thanks to an event, oh, just a little event, that would be known as the Kansas City Massacre. Now, this same day, Detective Ed Portley sent a letter to Texan towns trying to organise a coordinated pursuit of the, be- the Barrow Gang, asking for any information to be shared, including information of associates, hangouts, whatnot. No one responded, but this was the first time that law enforcement tried an intra-city investigation. So, as they were travelling, Bonnie's burns did eventually heal or at least they were healing. But it was clear that the tendons and ligaments in her leg wouldn't mend correctly, at least not without daily therapy. She would have to hobble when she walked from that point on. Now, if it ever were a time for Bonnie to give herself up, it would be now. There would be a good chance that she could even avoid jail time altogether if the jury was lenient and figured she'd suffered enough already. The Barrow gang needed some rest and relaxation. On the evening of July 18th, they pulled into a motor court, the Red Crown. N.D. Hauser was immediately suspicious of Blanche when she paid for the cabin. They parked their cars facing out of the garage, a sure sign of criminals who wanted to make a quick getaway. When Blanche got dinner, she ordered five of them, even though only three people were checked in. Helping her take the dinners back, he asked to record their license plates he had forgot when he was checking them in. Clyde obliged. Clyde had only just swapped out the plates and if anything did happen, I mean they were surrounded by stone and brick walls. The car was just there. They would be fine. They all slept in the following morning, probably missing the police that hung out at the Red Crown. Hauser mentioned the new occupants to the highway patrol captain, William Baxter, Baxter put the cabins under surveillance straight away. Sheriff Holt Coffey confirmed later that afternoon that the group were indeed the Barrow Gang. Now, Baxter was smart. He knew what type of weapons these people had. He got a hold of the Jackson County Sheriff and asked for machine guns, bulletproof shields, tear gas launchers, and armored cars. Getting more men and the car, Baxter and Coffey planned their raid. They would hit at night. Clyde had taped newspaper to the windows to stop anyone looking in, but that also stopped them from seeing an ambush outside. The posse knew that Bonnie was inside, thanks to the bandages and medical supplies that they bought. She would prove a liability to the Barrow gang. The night that shit went down, Buck and Blanche were talking about what they wanted to do for their future. Buck suggested going north to Canada, Blanche was down with that. Crossing the road to the shops to get some soap, she noticed quite a few people sort of just gathering about there, and they all fell eerily silent when she walked in. Back at the cabin, she told Buck about the people that were acting weird. Buck told her, eh, don't sweat it, they'd be fine if they didn't leave until the morning. She refused when Clyde ordered her to go out and get some sandwiches and some beer. WD went instead and didn't report anything out of the ordinary. W.D. is an idiot, though. At 1am on July 20th, Baxter and Coffee, with machine guns and metal shields, led the posse of 13 lawmen around the cabins. They steered the armored car in front of the garage, blocking the V8 inside. Behind their bulletproof shields, Coffey knocked on the door. Blanche called just a moment. The sheriff then identified himself and the Barrow gang let lead fly. Clyde and WD from the right, Buck from the left. Coffee was blasted back as the rifle bullets hit the shield. There was no penetration but the force still knocked them about. One of their own was startled and fired his shotgun, the buckshot grazing Coffee's neck. Inside, Clyde told WD to get in the car and start it. WD got the engine going and Clyde yelled for him to open the garage door. WD refused. The posse were firing. All over. With a BAR in one hand, Clyde ran towards the garage and opened the door himself. They then saw the car in the way. Though it was armoured, the heavy rifle Clyde was shooting was able to tear through the side. Bullets hit Highfield's le- legs. He panicked and the car lurched forward, leaving just enough space for Clyde to drive his car out. Bonnie got in the car, then Clyde and WD. Buck and Blanche would go out via the front door to get to their car. They rushed out. Buck's forehead painted the side of the house as a bullet from Baxter's machine gun entered his left temple and ripped out the front of his skull and exposed his brain. He dropped between the car and the cabin. Clyde helped Blanche drag him into the car as WD provided cover fire. As the car sped away, Blanche covered Buck. Bullets ricocheted off the back of the car. One of the bullets hit the back window. It exploded inwards into the car. Splinters of glass went straight into Blanche's eyes. They stopped after several hours, winding through backcountry roads. The car had a flat, and he had to deal with that, and Blanche was screaming about her eyes. Clyde told her that it really wasn't that bad. She could still see light and movement out of... Her right eye? Buck faded in and out of consciousness as Blanche did her best to cover the hole in his head to stem the bleeding. When they stopped for petrol, Buck began to vomit blood. Clyde took off, taking his chances at another servo. It was very clear that Buck was done for, but Blanche needed someone to look at her eyes. Next servo that they stopped at, Clyde brought bandage, hydrogen peroxide, and aspirin. They poured the hydrogen peroxide straight into the hole that was Buck's head and tried to wrap it as best as they could. Blanche got some sunglasses to help with her eyes. Late July 20th, Clyde decided to stop, just off the road outside of the town of Dexter, in a park called Dexfield. There, they rested for the night, and that is where we'll end this episode to be picked back up next time. This has been the Sex and Murder podcast. Thank you for listening.